Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. This is Patrick Georgioff coming at you from sunny Las Vegas, home of the Maddox Trauma, Critical Care, and Acute Care Surgery Conference. The Maddox Conference is literally the longest-running show in town at 55 consecutive years. For those who haven't had the opportunity to attend, I want to point out just how unique this conference is and that the focus is solely on clinical topics. Every talk, every panel, and every case discussion is relevant and practical, much like we try to do here at Behind the Knife. Today's episode is part two of two in which we use case-based discussions to hammer home key points from talks given by some of the biggest names in trauma, critical care, and acute care surgery. Enjoy. All right, let's get started with Dr. Hassan Alam. He is the uh, chair of the Department of Surgery and Surgeon-in-Chief at Northwestern Memorial Hospital in Chicago, Illinois. He also happens to be my longtime mentor and a very good friend, so I'm thrilled to have him on Behind the Knife. And the title of his talk was Acute Care Surgery Team, Evolving Practice Patterns, Challenges, and Opportunities. So we'll get started with a case. We have a third-year resident who is interested in pursuing a career in acute care surgery. The resident loves a good trauma. He finds the physiology in the ICU fascinating and gets excited with the discovery of free air on imaging. However, this resident is worried about burnout, a narrowing scope of practice, and decreased autonomy within large hospital systems. So, Dr. Alam, what would you tell this resident about the future of acute care surgery in the United States? So, I'll make three points. Uh, point number one is that I think the, uh, the future is bright. We have an aging population. Uh, surgical emergencies are not going anywhere. So, we will continue to have uh, practice, a lot of opportunities to help people. Uh, they... Uh, Types of cases may change. Penetrating trauma goes up and comes down, uh, ebbs and flow dictated by a variety of different things. Uh, but the surgical emergencies are here to stay, and they're going to get more, um, more frequent, more common, and patients are going to get sicker. So it's a very uh, rewarding uh, career from that standpoint. The three points I just want to make is, one is that it's not all about... Um, business. You have to know where your passion is. And if you think about passion, it's got the same root as suffering. So the question is, what are you willing to suffer for? And there are a few things in life that you're willing to suffer for, not everything. So you have to, you know, look deep within and say, you know, is this something that I care about? Everyone has a different definition of a great life. The way I look at it, a great life is a life where you have meaningful work, you have loving relationships, you have your health, and you're making fair market wage. And I think if you care about taking care of patients who are sick and making a difference in their life, it's a a great profession. Um, The third one, I think, is, and I I tell it to all the residents, I tell it to the faculty, and I try to practice myself, your training, your education um, doesn't end when you get done with your training. Mm -hmm. Uh, A a big critical sort of a fundamental question in life is what's more important, what you already know or what you don't know? the skills that you already have, or the skills that you need to achieve your full potential. So there's no reason why you should um, not have an elective private practice. There's no reason why you should not be doing uh, big cases. But you have to hold yourself accountable. You can't be sloppy. You can't be doing stuff that you can't do or have suboptimal outcome. 
But there is no reason, there is no reason in the world why you should not every day uh, try to improve your skill set and compete uh, with others. Um, have a private practice on the side, have elective practice, have, uh, do some thoracic cases, do some chest wall reconstruction, do abdominal wall reconstruction, do laparoscopic cases, robotic cases. There's no reason why you can't do it. The only thing that's limiting you is sometimes your own hesitancy. And sometimes it's the system. So when you're looking for the job, look for a job that will allow you to achieve your full potential. Um, and every job, there's no exception to it. They're looking for somebody to fill a certain role, and you have certain priorities that you hold near and dear to your heart. So don't compromise on that. Look for the right job, and it's out there. It's a big market. Yeah. You, you talk about burnout in your in your talk as well. Mm-hmm. In one survey that you mentioned, it was over, I think, 8,000 surgeons uh, found that 40% were burned out, and, and that trauma surgeons were more likely to be so. Despite that high burnout rate, surgeons continued, or stated in the survey, they continued to find their work personally meaningful and rewarding. And 75% of them would uh, be a surgeon again if given a choice. How does that fit in specifically for acute care surgeons and trauma surgeons? Are they destined for burnout? What about those late nights, yeah. overnight shifts, weekends? Yeah. yeah, I mean, as I said, like, you know, it, it really is whether you, f- you find purpose and meaning in your work. Um, a lot of the burnout is not related to the work or working hours or calls. Some of it might be, mm-hmm. but a lot of it is um, related to factors such as um, increasing uh, burden of um, EMR, documentation, uh, non-clinical work, uh, people feeling like they don't have control over their destiny over their lives. Um, a lot of, lot of it's got to do with leadership, but a lot of it has to do with, with, with your life in general. I mean... At some point in time, you have to think about simplicity is is okay to not try to get everything that you possibly can, but like the things that you have. Uh, setting the right priorities, not saying yes to every committee thing, not just trying to sort of like take on additional work if it, even if it comes with additional uh, pay, um, financial reimbursement. So it really comes down to what you want to set your life uh, as and. Uh, it's, I think that's the, one of the big reasons. I mean, if you never see your family, you're always tied up with a lot of stuff, you're stuck in traffic, you're doing EMR stuff. I think I, I can completely see somebody mm-hmm. getting burned out. Um, but a lot of it is like there are jobs out there where you can actually, uh, may not make as much money, but you will have more freedom. Um, I had one friend in New York, covered four hospitals, um, was just sort of brink of complete meltdown. Um, and he completely changed his life around. It's cut his work down by about 50%. Mm-hmm. His, he now only does FIFA service. Uh, he makes less money than he did before, but he is much more happier. So yeah. it all comes down to like, you know, how you set your life up. You have agency. That's my point. It's like, you know, you are not a helpless creature that you're waiting for a knight in the shining armor to come and save you. Well, and, and I've always been impressed with your... I guess uh, appropriate term would be mindfulness in some way in terms of how you approach individual situations over the years I've known you. And you mentioned in the talk um, from, I think it was Stephen Covey, the author, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And I, I quote, I am not a product of my circumstance. I am a product of my decisions, end quote. So a lot of that, I think, is what you described, right? That you, uh, working within that system, you maximize uh, what makes you happiest and, and, and most productive and, and balance that with the life that and everyone's different, right? And, and, and like you know, and one of the uh, basic principle there is um, there are a lot of things around us um, that we should be concerned about: global warming, um, war in Ukraine, you know, a variety of different things. 
But there's a smaller circle of things where my actions can directly, right. immediately uh, create change. And I think people who uh, feel more empowered, more in control of the circumstances, they have an ability to focus on things they can control, the inner circle, the things that are within the circle of control, rather than the, the larger circle where they have no control over it. Uh, because you can fret about it, there's not much you can do about it, and it adds to anxiety, stress, uh, feeling of helplessness, you know, uh, I'm just spinning my wheels. But for each and every one of us, there is a, a circle of influence that you can control the variables very, very effectively. And there are uh, decisions and choices you're going to make. So the life that you will be leading, and I say to all the residents, junior faculty, even senior faculty, you know, see yourself like where you want to be seven years from now and the decisions that you make today will dictate what you will be doing seven years from now. You may make choices about making more money or doing more work, uh, buying more material goods, or um, making different choices. Right. All right, going back to that third-year resident who's worried about acute care surgery, mm -hmm. any closing comments for that individual? I, the closing comments are, you know, uh, taking care of sick people on the worst day is a privilege. Uh, and, and it is a privilege that we have. Um, we should not take it lightly. Um, and there is no reason you should compare yourself to who somebody else is, is today. You should compare yourself to who you were yesterday. You have to achieve your full potential to whether that neurosurgeon or that orthopedic surgeon is making more money than you today or somebody on the East Coast or West Coast has a different contract. It is not really that relevant. Again, it is not within your sphere of control. But how you grow and evolve over the next seven years is completely and absolutely within your control. And that's what you should focus on and drive meaning and purpose from the work that you do and realize that you will be among one of the top few two or three percent in terms of uh, cash compensation. So money is not going to be your issue. But more money doesn't equal more purpose. And um, money is not going to fill lack of purpose if you have lack of purpose in your life. Sure. So it's just a matter of setting priorities. So I, I look at the future as, as bright. I look at the glass nearly full. Um, and I, I'm very, very optimistic about the, the generation that's uh, coming behind us. Well, as always, good words of wisdom. Yep. Appreciate you. Absolutely. My pleasure. All right, next up is a guy named Scott Steele. Hey. Happens to be founder of Behind the Knife and chair of colorectal surgery at Cleveland Clinic. He gave a couple of fantastic talks at this conference. The one I liked the most was the ostomy won't reach. Thanks, brother. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Our case is an obese 64-year-old male is taken to the OR for perforated diverticulitis with widespread fecal contamination. The abdomen is washed out. Sigmoidectomy is performed. The patient's doing well. Uh, you actually set to work uh, to create an end colostomy. However, this proves pretty difficult. Uh, there are, what are some tips and tricks, Scott, that you can tell us to help manage the creation of a difficult ostomy? Yeah, so on a kind of 10,000-foot view level, whenever you think about making a stoma, think about the things that you can do in the abdomen and think about the belly wall. And then you really kind of go down each of those avenues, whether it's morbidly obese, whether it's the person who's you know, in this particular case is maybe septic or maybe had an intra-abdominal catastrophe where the mesentery is really thick, the bowel is dilated, and the bowel is thick itself, it's very friable. That's, you know, that, that's a difficult place to be. And then if you throw in other things like obesity, about a foreshortened mesentery, and now you're going to find it hard to get up to the skin. So in general, let's go down each of those two lanes. 
So first, lesson number one, mark ahead of time even if in the, uh, even if in the emergent setting. So you really want to take a look and say, hey, take the time, look at their belly, look at their scars, see what's going on, see if you can find a nice flat spot. We talk about the ostomy triangle, but the reality of the situation is, is that especially in patients that have difficult stomas or they're morbidly obese, the upper abdomen tends to be thinner and it's an easier ostomy to get up. Right. So with that in mind, by simply marking them or marking them a few different sites, remember upwards of 50% of colostomies in general that uh, get done may never get taken down. So you want to make sure it's done right. In terms of the intra-abdominal things you can do, uh, a couple of points. Um, number one, when you're looking to gain length, you got to mobilize, mobilize, and mobilize some more. For, so in this case, for a colostomy, make sure that you're fully taking down the splenic flexure. You want to make sure you take down the lateral attachments, the omental attachments, since it's oftentimes those retroperitoneal attachments, the so-called pancreaticocolic ligaments mm-hmm. that sometimes will not take them down. The spleen will fall away, but you just can't get length. Just like you're getting length if you want to do a low anterior section and get, uh, an as- uh, get an anastomosis down there, you're essentially making an anastomosis to the skin. So don't dissect close to the bowel, because when you dissect close to the bowel, you're going to make that part ischemic. It's not going to get any better. And this is hard because in many cases, the mesentery is thickened. It's a foreshortened mesentery. And you're a little bit worried about, okay, where do I take that vessel and what do I do? So don't be worried. Go down. Take the IMA closer to its base. Take the IMV just lateral to the ligamentotrites near the first portion of the uh, at the first portion of the jejunum. That's the, the type of length that you're going to need to have. Then the next step is is to say to yourself, I want to make sure that I um, I don't you know give myself too little a bowel. So if you're going to divide the bowel, you know you want to take out the diseased portion of it, but don't be scared to leave a little extra bowel that may not make it all the way. So it's it'll help you get that bowel through, through the wall. In terms of uh, the the skin itself. A lot of people are too worried that they're going to make um, too big of a hole. Man, this is not the time to be thinking about, am I going to have a hernia or not? So you want to make your trephon, your opening, big enough. You can fight the fight of a hernia of another day. Mm-hmm. But what you don't want to do is make the trephon too small. You're bringing up a, a bowel that is essentially you know, thickened, it's foreshortened, and all of a sudden now it's going to cut off the venous return because it's kind of getting kinked or getting squished off at the level of the fascia, and you'll have problems. Right. So let's say you took the time to mark the patient pre-op. Mm-hmm. You were thoughtful about that. You actually found a nice area in the upper abdomen for this very obese individual. Like you said, upper abdomen better than lower. You mobilized. You're, you're damn sure you mobilized as much as you can. You pie-crusted the mesentery even to get some extra length. You divided the IMA and IMV fearlessly, knowing that you still have that good blood supply. You checked the blood supply. That's good. You still can't pull it up. There, you mentioned something called a loop end. Can you explain to everyone what that is? Yeah, so when you're thinking about the area that you cut off, if, whether you use a stapler or whether you use an atraumatic bowel clamp or whatever, that, that's the end of the bowel. But um, the way that many people's mesentery and blood vessels sit, that very, very distal end doesn't have the ability to come up. Um, think about a, um, a knuckle versus the end of a finger. So, um, you know, at the end of the finger, it may not be able to get all the way up, but you can get just where the blood vessel lies. It's the knuckle portion of it that you can get a couple of extra centimeters. 
So you bring up what's called an end loop or a loop end or a pseudo loop. That's kind of what it is. And essentially by bringing up the knuckle, the end of it or the stapled off end, the oversewed end is just underneath the skin and it's a blind end. And then the, the, it's, the it functions as an end because that's only a couple of centimeters away from where your actual opening is going to be. And that, again, that is the apex of the bowel and it'll allow you to go through. The more difficult thing to understand then is now you're trying to bring in through the abdominal wall two sections of a bowel right. and not just one so make sure that your stoma opening at the level of the fascia is big enough you put a bar or a uh, catheter i think that in if you were to make a um, a loop end yeah it depends so there's a lot of things out there and you may have seen it on social media about uh, rods versus no rods and you'll find a lot of meta-analysis out there that will suggest that rods don't do any good but certainly um you can put a rod in uh you know it's not wrong to put a rod in uh, in many cases especially when it's really taut and you're having a difficulty getting it up all the way to reach above the level of the skin you know they talk about a colostomy oh you can have it flush you really want a colostomy still above the level of the skin think about a baby's bottle right you want to be able to have the child go um, over the top of the baby baby's bottle similarly you want the stoma bag itself to go over the top of what um, of what the bowel is at the level of the skin because when you get leakage around the skin it starts to become this feudal cycle where the bag doesn't sit it leaks underneath the bag the skin gets raw and the bag won't leak and all of a sudden now you're getting more mm-hmm. and more and more problems so to have that ability to have the bowel up a little bit above the level of the skin and then the bag go over the top take the time at that moment you know patrick one of the things that people have to understand is if you're looking at that stoma and you're thinking, oh, it'll probably be okay. It's probably just a little venous congested or something. Yeah, maybe. But the worst thing in the world is going back on day one and being like, oh, my God, that was such a difficult operation. And now the stoma's dead. Yeah. And now i got to take him back. And now it's even more difficult. Well, into that, and let's ask one more question to, to wrap it up. In addition to looking at the bowel and seeing that it's nice and pink and well-perfused, maybe you get a pendopler out and listen to some pulses, and, and you're pretty happy with the mesentery are you routinely using icg uh, in these cases for let's say for this case as a more of an emergency kind of general surgery case are you using icg to look at blood flow no not necessarily but there's people that use icg for everything i think that icg needs to be you know a tool in your armamentarium so you know certain people say icb i see bleeding (laughs) you cut off the end of it and you see pulses out blood flow you don't need icg for that but on these difficult cases where you're like, you know, is, a, is the Doppler biphasic? Is it triphasic? Am I really seeing it? Why can't I find it? I know it's there. I think I feel a pulse. And then your mind starts playing tricks on you. I'm like, do I feel a pulse? Is it my pulse? And you're checking all this. ICG sometimes is a nice area to be able to have, a nice trick to have. It's readily available in most operating rooms. It's relatively inexpensive. And so no, the answer is no, I don't use it all the time. But for some of these kind of grayer area cases, it might be provide good. The, the other part about that is if you have a problem with saying, I can definitively take a certain blood supply, before you divide that, you could potentially put an atraumatic bowel clap right. across that one and then give ICG and see if it'll light up. That'll give you another piece and reassurance. Sure. Hey, thanks. Dominate the day. All right. Here now with Dr. Joseph DeBose, who is professor of surgery at Dell Medical School at the University of Texas in Austin. Also the producer and creator of Tiger Country, a trauma podcast, which is, I think, my favorite podcast. High-level 
uh, trauma discussion, and you got up to what forty plus ki- uh, episodes. We did. I have not. Uh, we have not dusted it off in a little bit. But yeah. We had. Uh, we had a lot of fun that, was, especially as the pandemic was starting out. So. Yeah. Timeless though, too. So if yeah. you, so anyone who's listening to this who is a trauma fan or a trauma junkie, uh, Tiger Country is exceptional. I really, really enjoyed it. It's high level discussion. I think you will too. So please take a listen. And uh, Dr. DuBose, you spoke about a couple things, but Ultrasound 2022 is one of the titles. Is it really useful in the trauma center? So we'll start with the case. A 60-year-old female presents as a level one trauma following MVC. The primary survey is notable for diminished breath sounds on the left. Secondary survey is notable for a seatbelt sign. Heart rate is 130, blood pressure 116 over 70, respiratory rate 28, and oxygen saturation 92% on a non-rebreather mask. How do you use ultrasound to optimize this patient's uh, care in the trauma bay? Yeah. So, what do you, where do you and what do you work it in? I think is the more important question. With the uh, any diagnostic tool that has a specificity of approaching ninety percent or one hundred percent in blunt trauma patients for detecting intra-abdominal hemorrhage or sources of hemorrhage that need control, you, the danger is always that you jump to it too early. Right, and you use it in advance of a standard ATLS pathway. I think this patient, you, you suspect they're tachycardic. You suspect they have decreased, and they have decreased breath sounds. You, you figure pneumothorax is going to be in play here, mm-hmm. and, and then the question becomes: at that point, where do I work ultrasound in? Do I stop when I'm doing the A, B, and Cs, and and use ultra, ultrasound at that point to mm-hmm. assess the breathing? Uh, or do I wait and use it as an adjunct? And I think if there's an interesting paper out of L.A. County that looked at people who jumped to using the ultrasound before they'd done their primary survey. And, mm-hmm. and what they found was that there were actually an increased rate of intubations, increased rate of transfusion need. Uh, and I think what it does is it delays and throws off the efficiency of that uh, primary survey and all the interventions that you can do that are life-saving or, or certainly good for the patient in, in the context of that. So. I would say ultrasound for me would come after the primary survey. Probably do it, you know, either immediately before the chest X-ray or immediately after the chest. Yeah. X-ray. So let's talk a little bit more about that. Uh, EFAS, as the extended fast, includes mm-hmm. chest views. Uh, is it prime time now? If you're, uh, especially if you're skilled with the ultrasound probe, to start detecting pneumothoraces with an ultrasound, or you still need a chest X-ray? Do you do both? Yeah, you Which know, order? I, I think I think you, you both is probably my preference uh, because it's certainly there, the emergency medicine literature is replete with a series that have shown that it can be done effectively, can be done rapidly. There is a skill component to it. So as with any technology, it's going to be a user. Uh, there's be user errors and user skill that's going to be needed. Um, but the challenge is you can identify pneumothorax, yes or no, with the basic EFAST. Mm-hmm. But most of those pneumothoraces may not need a chest, you know, right. chest So what's tube. clinically significant, what's, Yeah, right? exactly. What's the value to the patient when we, we can just get a chest X-ray and see if that's a size? So you're doing both? We do both. I think it's important for people to learn. If the patient is, this patient is not hypotensive, little tachycardic. This would be a case where I support my ER partners who like to do this universally. I just make sure they do it after the primary survey and the patient doesn't decompensate and need an emergent chest tube or something. Critical. Get that, yeah. get that primary and secondary survey yeah. done quick, efficient. There are some limitations uh, to FAST exam. We're worried about this woman's belly, right? She's hypotensive, tachycardic, has a seatbelt sign. Mm-hmm. What are some of the limitations when it comes to detecting fluid in the abdomen? 
Yeah, so we're always trying. It's the false negative problem that we're trying to combat. That's right. We haven't really been able to solve since the 90s completely. Body habitus, air, um, user error, all of these things, uh, you know, can cause problems with uh, your views that you're going to be able to obtain. And even defining what is, we say equivocal fast all the time. That's mm-hmm. not a definition that's hard. It just means you can't say definitively yes or no. You don't have adequate views. So what do you do with a patient that has that equivocal fast exam? That That's a great it's dictated by many things, but that's where you either DPL from the unstable patient comes back into play. There's a technology we haven't, we don't use very often anymore, or the CT scanner trumps everything, and the old tunnel of truth gives us what we need. Sure, I think you mentioned 200 cc's of blood to be positive is is, is a or 150. I think some of the different studies show you different numbers. Yeah. But I think the importance to remember is that uh, the patient's condition can change over time, and so uh, ultrasound is cheap, free. Free-ish. And can be done and can be done serially, minutes. right? Absolutely. And so, no uh, if you have a negative fast, you can come back and do it again, and you may find that it's subsequently Absolutely. positive, and there may be enough blood that's accumulated at that point. But let's say this this patient gets sicker, and you look at the heart, and you don't see a tamponade, um, but you have a hemothorax. How can yeah. that be? Yeah. Well, the the uh, certainly hemothorax. One of the thing. One of the the, the, the things that will promote better specificity and sensitivity with the pericardial views is, is draining that hemothorax first. Mm-hmm. That, some of the studies have been quite clear that to really get a reliable pericardial view, you need to drain identified hemothorax. First. What about a decompressed tamponade that's draining into the chest as well? Always a, a false negative. Always a possibility. Uh, you know, uh, rare, but... Liver lacerations with the diaphragm. I've seen that several times. The chest tube's pouring out blood, and it's actually a liver injury bleeding through the diaphragm. So right. all those things can fool you. Should FAST be done for every trauma activation? Uh, I think... In a training institution. In a training institution. There you go. That's the clause that you needed. I think, I think yes. Um, I do think, you know, the data suggests that you really need... This is dating back to kind of Steve Shackford's work where he kind of showed that surgeons could do this. We didn't even... And, and ER docs. And mm-hmm. we didn't need radiologists to do this. You really only need about 10 to get a significant degree of proficiency. Uh, and and to be able to do Which this reliable fasting, yeah. and, and if you're a bit at a busy training center, you're going to do way more than ten. Yeah, you know. So. What if what if the patient's stable? Uh, they have a mechanism like an MVC if, in which you know you're going to pan scan them. Uh, are you still doing the fast for educational purposes? Delaying the, uh, especially if you're in a training center, maybe delaying yeah. by a few minutes or even more with your trainee uh, to uh, delay a trip to the CT scanner again, stable patient. Well, you know what's useful, and this is my argument for the value actually of the FAST exam, even in penetrating trauma, that I'm, that I'm sending the scanner that we're not running up to the OR, is it's useful information if it's positive. Mm-hmm. Right? It's always useful if it's positive. So if I'm sending a stable patient to the scanner with a positive FAST after a blunt mechanism, and then they decompensate the scanner, and i got to abruptly stop that scan, I know where I'm, where I'm going, what I'm going to do. This idea, this hard and fast idea that you don't do a fast exam in penetrating abdominal trauma, something I've never quite under, understood. You don't have to, if, if there's indications, go to the OR, go to the OR, you don't need to do it. But this hard and fast to say we don't do it in a penetrating yeah. abdominal injury, uh, uh, you just get more information, especially so, yeah, yeah. if you're facile at it and you're not wasting a lot of time. There's, I've never understood that that well, mantra or teaching. I don't either. It, it is something that a lot of trauma surgeons very vehemently, and, and there's history to this, right? The initial studies, they found that when they eliminated the penetrating, uh, Grace Rizicki and that, that group eliminated the penetrating injuries from the, the mix, they improved the, sense, the specificity and sensitivity. Right, right. sure. Yeah. But that's that's misappropriated then in terms of that uh, that, that actual Absolutely. management. So. I still see some significant utility for a variety of reasons, not least of which identifying which cavity the bleeding has gone, right. especially for those near junctional where it might be thorax it might be abdomen you don't if get, it's 
positive, it's very different than if it's negative in my mind. That tells me that I'm thinking about hollow viscous, not a major vascular structure. So uh, I think it's useful. Any closing thoughts on ultrasound? Um, I would say I think the great challenge, the new challenges for ultrasound is not so much the diagnosis of hemorrhage but vascular access. Yeah. I think in our ERs and in our trauma bays across the country, and I, this is the vascular half of my brain, I'm dual trained, so this is me talking mm-hmm. here. But I think we need to be, have, be more liberal with the early placement of arterial access for monitoring uh, uh, and utilizing ultrasound to do that safety, safely and efficiently. Yeah. Is, uh, is- it's just can be distressing to see a uh, perfectly functional, high quality ultrasound probe that's on with the screen on, and then watching uh, someone you know cranking through multiple multiple pa- yeah. acupuncture in the in the right? and, I, and I've done that before. Trust me, it's yeah. uh, I'm not innocent too. But if it's there and you have, uh, it, it'll end, you'll end up getting aligning quicker, yeah, with less complication, and, and with less complications, absolutely. And that data is quite clear. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. It's been my pleasure. Take care. All right, next up is the Chief of Emergency General Surgery and Director of Trauma Research at L.A. County and USC Medical Center and a good friend of Behind the Knife, Dr. Matthew Martin. Welcome. Thank you. Thrilled, good to, good thrilled to be to back, back after a couple years. I feel like you're in your element here at the Maddox <laughs> Trauma Conference. He's like a, a superstar. This is a great meeting. It really is. It really is. You get multiple talks today at this uh, conference, and one was called Decompressive Craniectomy for TBI, Stay the Course or Pop the Top. So let's start with a case, and we'll uh, highlight some of the key um, recommendations from your, from your talk. So a 22-year-old male is involved in a high-speed MVC. He's found to have a severe TBI. He's intubated. GCS is 6T. A bolt was placed, and CT scan shows diffuse injury with edema and a one-centimeter subdural with a very small amount of midline shift. He's admitted to the ICU. 24 hours later, not much has changed. He did have a repeat head CT scan, and that was uh, stable. However, his ICPs are now 25 to 30 despite maximum medical management. We've elevated the head of the bed, hyperventilated the patient. He's sedated, paralyzed. He's received hypertonic saline. He is maxed out. Um, and we as trauma surgeons manage TBI, right? Uh, we, a lot we, of people. We manage most of it. Yeah, and a lot of folks don't mm-hmm. want to believe that uh they they want to put their head in their sands and in the sand and forget about it because it can be very challenging it's not part of our core curriculum from the beginning as as surgeons but uh, we need to know about this so so how do we decide if a decompressive craniectomy is indicated in this patient we know animal models show so benefit um, we know that in non-traumatic ischemic strokes there's some benefit but what about adult trauma patients yeah, so, so uh, ischemic strokes like uh, or middle cerebral artery syndrome, there's a clear benefit of decompressive craniectomy, multiple randomized trials, so it's very accepted there. In, in trauma, it's been a little bit more controversial, and, and that's mainly because there's been two main randomized trials and, and a third in kids, and they've come out with conflicting results. Right. Basically, one, one supporting it cautiously, one, that was the one, ICP yeah, the rescue trial. ICP trial supporting it, the DECRA trial, which came out and, and showed worse uh, outcomes. So it's so still been a big debate. But, but I think the big factors here are, one, you have a, a very young person. So we, we always should be more aggressive with that person. They have much better outcomes with any degree of TBI. Um, so you have that factor that would be pushing you to being more aggressive. You also have that they had some neurologic function. They were GCS6, mm-hmm. uh, so I'd also base it on their best GCS. But a patient like this, 
if we have maxed out our medical management, what we call tier one and tier two therapies, um, I would push for a craniectomy in this patient. And what about uh, military results? You mentioned some of that in your talk as mm-hmm. well. That that's there's a little bit more positive uh, yeah, the, findings there. The, the military data has been really unequivocally, I think, in favor of craniectomy. Yeah. So the military took a very aggressive posture. Um, and but you have to remember, you're you're dealing with a younger and healthier population on average. Our service members who get injured, you're dealing with almost all our penetrating or blast mechanism. So, so there's very little of the blunt car crash mm-hmm. uh, type mechanism, uh, but the, the long-term outcomes have been really stellar in the military data. And the other thing I think that the military data really points out is you need to look at data two or more years out, because when they looked at the two-year data, the function that these patients recovered was pretty remarkable. Right, which is something we don't see a lot, right? Especially as trauma surgeons, we take care of these folks in their ICU, and it, it, it looks awful. It's terrible. Well, and we don't uh, we don't see a lot, and most of the studies will do three month outcome, or, or you know, at most six month Glasgow outcome score. You really need to follow these patients for a couple years to to get the full measure of recovery. Sure. What about timing? So I mentioned for this this patient with a devastating uh, head injury. Well, maybe don't say devastating, but a severe head injury from his MVC. We're twenty four hours out. Mm-hmm. Is that early? What's, that, what's early, what's late? That, that, would, that would probably be about usual range. Mm-hmm. So, and, and that's one of the big debates of the DECRA trial, which came out really against craniectomy. They used a very early go to craniectomy after tier one interventions, which would just kind of be the first couple things you do. If those failed, they went right to craniectomy. Right. So that's one of the criticisms of that trial is they, they didn't do the full medical management and then go to craniectomy if needed. So, so I'd say this person is right in that range, and this is usually when you're going to see a lot of the secondary brain edema really start to drive the refractory ICP, kind of the 24 to 72-hour right. range. in that three-day range. Yeah. And then the, the Brain Trauma Foundations have updated. Well, I guess their last update was in 2020, mm-hmm. right? And they gave level 2A evidence uh, regarding improved mortality and overall outcomes for decompressive craniectomy performed late but not early, and that this could improve mortality and favorable outcomes. Yeah. Essentially what they did is they took the rescue ICP approach. Right. So really they, what they're just saying is rescue ICP says there's a benefit, and here's the approach rescue ICP used. So if you're going to do this, you should follow it. So, so a couple things. So rescue ICP, they, you do tier one, tier two interventions. If those are failing, then you can go to craniectomy. Um, they allowed their, you know, there are two main options for craniectomy, a hemicraniectomy where you take off half the skull or a bifrontal where you take off both frontal bones. They, they uh, recommend a hemicraniectomy, uh, and that was mostly what was used in rescue ICP. Uh, so this, they're essentially saying follow the rescue ICP approach. I, I think the big point is you have to realize when you're doing this for trauma, craniectomy is associated with a much better survival. In, in every study. Mm-hmm. So you are going to get a pool of survivors. The big question is how many of those survivors are going to be neurologically devastated? So you're creating a bunch of permanent neurologically devastated survivors and how many are going to have good recovery? Right. And that's what you're trying to sort out in your patient selection. And that's why I said, for example, the patient you gave me, you put them in any of the risk calculators. He's 20-something. He had a GCS3 so, or GCS6, so he wasn't three. He didn't have a fixed dilated pupil. That would fall in the be more aggressive uh, right. realm. But, but, but even in that case, you're going to have some survivors who are neuro- neurologically devastated and some who make 
remarkable recovery, and it's very hard to predict that up front. So you're in the hospital at 2 a.m. You've done everything you can in terms of medical management. You pick up the phone and calling your neurosurgery colleague for this patient and saying, I think you need to come in and decompress this patient. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. And, and I think the phone call is, hey, we... You know, we've done everything for the ICP. It's still 30 or 40. You know, your cerebral perfusion pressure is uh, in the 40s or less. Mm -hmm. It's either we need to do the full bore and go to craniectomy, or we should probably start having discussions about withdrawing care. Excellent. And any uh, last words of wisdom in terms of how to, how to frame this when our uh, residents are taking care of these patients at night and, again, feeling overwhelmed about path- this pathophysiology in general? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's actually the most, the, the most important thing you can do is know your medical management of TBI and ICP. Because like I said, the patients that end up getting neurosurgery are a small percentage of the total patients with severe TBI, right? We do most of that management. So it's just understanding here's a stepwise approach, and the best of all is if your institution has a protocol, and following that protocol of here's what I do next, here's what I do next, and it would usually be something like sedation, if that's not working, paralysis, you give a hyperosmolar agent, um, either mannitol or hypertonic saline, uh, head a bit elevated, you know, moderate hyperventilation, and if you've done all that and they still have refractory ICP, it's time to, again, say we either need to call the neurosurgeons and talk about a craniectomy or... We need to say, okay, this this might be non-survivable, and we, we probably shouldn't follow through. Yeah. The, the the final point I want to emphasize too is there are two randomized trials that that we're waiting on the data from that are really going to help. There's one called Rescue ASDH, mm-hmm. and that specifically looks at patients with big subdurals, um, and and Decra would Decra excluded those patients, right? Which is interesting. So yeah. I think that this will be... So Decra was just for diffuse edema. It, focal lesions were excluded. So the patient with the big subdural, you, you can't say Decra applies. And Rescue rescue ICP allowed those patients in, but that was only 20% of their population. Yeah. So this trial will be all patients with big mass lesions. The other one that just started enrolling is the PREDICT AEDH. And that's, that's just like the other one, except it's looking at epidural hematomas. Right. Yeah, if you, I recommend if anyone's really interested in this, it's listening, is to read those trials and you'll start going, eh, there's really not a lot, it's, there's a lot of caveats to those to those papers in terms of enrollment and, and um, yeah, but, but inclusion I think, and exclusion. But, but, but I think anybody who's been doing this, I mean, I've seen some remarkable of, you know, 20 year old who comes in and the initial, you know, nurse said, this is probably non-survivable or this is devastating. Right. And that patient walks out of the hospital a couple weeks later, you know, after having a, a craniectomy. Sure. So, so in the right patient, uh, I think anybody who does this for a while has seen a number of patients like that. Um, it's really just trying to make that patient selection the right way. That's right. And, and it's not the end of, uh, you know, when it comes to having a craniectomy, um, the decision-making can continue after that, too. There are discussions that can occur after that. It's not a one-way street. Oh, yeah. And so. One, especially you do a craniectomy, and, and the, patient, well. the patient's ICP is still 40. Right. That Then you, you can pretty much say, okay, this is probably not survivable. Fantastic. Okay, very good. Thanks for being here. All right, great. Thanks for having me.
I'm absolutely thrilled to be here with Dr. Red Hoffman, who's an acute care surgeon at Mission Health in Asheville, North Carolina, where she's also Associate Hospice Medical Director. She's also co-founder of the Surgical Palliative Care Society. She has her own exceptional podcast, uh, Surgical Palliative Care, which I've listened to every single episode and I think is putting out some extremely important information. And she is a member of Behind the Knife as our palliative care uh, team uh, producer as well. And so she's given multiple presentations here at the Maddox Conference. The one we're going to talk about today and focus on is Death in the Trauma Bay. There's never nothing left to do, which is a very apt title. Dr. Hoffman, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So let's start with the case. Sure thing. A 27-year-old male presents to the trauma bay after high-speed MVC. At the scene, he's hypoxic with a GCS of 3 and he's intubated. No drugs are given. Primary survey is notable for an endotracheal tube, GCS of 3, and unequal pupils. Secondary survey is unremarkable. Heart rate is 120. Blood pressure 150 over 80. Respiratory rate 28. Oxygen saturation 92%. Chest x-ray, pelvic x-ray, fast exam, labs, all unremarkable. CT scan shows a very severe traumatic brain injury. Um, after scans, the patient becomes increasingly unstable. He is given blood and started on a norepinephrine infusion. His condition deteriorates farther, and he's now intermittently bradycardic, hypotensive, and tachypnic. He's now a norepi, vaso, and epi was just started. And you think arrest is actually imminent. His family has just arrived to the emergency department. So this is a challenging case. So where do we start? So I think, number one, it sounds like he has a devastating brain injury and is on his way to herniation. I think in situations like this, though, a trauma surgeon, I can say that as a trauma surgeon, I think loading the boat and having a neurosurgeon available just to give another opinion, especially when death seems imminent, is a great idea. So I'd certainly call the neurosurgeon. And then I would quickly gather the family because it sounds like time is really short. How would you set the stage with the family? How would you, uh, in terms of your conversation with them, but also with the staff in the room, your, your, your trauma team, and physically the room itself? Sure. So I'd actually probably have this discussion outside of the trauma bay. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think there's certainly something to be said for having enough chairs for everyone and having tissues because we know this is going to be a difficult conversation. And the question I always ask is, tell me what you know. Because sometimes they already know it's bad, and sometimes they're asking, oh, did he just bump his head, and is he awake? Mm-hmm. So it could just help us set Which the stage. Is so worrisome in the latter, you know, when you have to bring that news. Yeah. So how do you, you ask them first sure. what you know, yeah. and let's say they know nothing. They're yeah. just here because... Their, their loved one got in an accident. And so what I talked about at the conference is the next thing we do in palliative care is fire a warning shot. Well, I'm so sorry. I have some really serious news to tell you, or I have some very difficult news to tell you, and then I get right to it. So that your son has what I would consider a devastating brain injury. He is likely going to die within the next minutes to hours. And I just put it out there with very plain language. Like I talked about, you always use the D word, death, dying, died, because I never want people to feel confused about what's going on. Right. And how do you convey futility? Sure. So one, like I had said about loading the boat, I think I would ask my neurosurgeon to be there too, to kind of back me up and say, listen, this is an injury that is not survivable. And while I would talk about the word futility probably with the team, I'm not sure, sure I would use it with them. I just almost say this is a, this is a non-survivable injury right. or a devastating brain injury. Right. Now, are we ethically obligated to provide treatment that's futile? One way we can care for the family themselves is to relieve them of the decisional burden. Yes. Uh, 
by not asking them to choose fetal treatments, which is powerful for especially for these type of moments in the trauma bay. Yeah. So um, Robert McCulley wrote this great book, which maybe we should link to in the show notes, Ethics of Palliative Care. And he does talk about this. Um, Physicians are not ethically required to provide or offer futile treatment. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't even put it on the table for the patients or, the, or their families at this point. Um, and, you know, there's, one, there's two different ways to look at futility. There's qualitative futility, which is what this is. No matter what we do, mm-hmm. this patient is going to die. Sometimes it's a little more tricky with quantitative futility, which is you have, say, metastatic ovarian cancer and you have renal failure. Okay, will I offer you dialysis? Likely not. It's going to be futile because it's not going to change the overall outcome. You're probably going to still die very soon. Uh, Qualitative futility, we're not required to do anything for that. And again, I I love this idea of decisional burden. Families will feel like if if you offer them something that you know is not going to change the outcome, they will have to live with that decision for the rest of their lives. So that's my job, to take it on my soul to say, this is the decision. It's something that I see so often. It extends beyond the trauma base, certainly into the ICU, especially where these uh, it's like a menu of different treatment options being offered when some of those things shouldn't be on the menu. Yes. Um, and as a, uh, a physician and, or an intensivist maybe from the ICU, you have the experience and the knowledge to know what to, to offer these things or not. The family doesn't. And exactly. even no matter how, how much you explain it, they can't be expected to understand the ramifications of those of that menu item, right, on their loved one. And so uh, I think that's, that's a huge thing to relieve them of decisional burden by not asking them to choose futile treatments. Now, going back to our patient, do you remove the airway? Do you give morphine? What are you doing here? Because this is, this is tough, right? And you have a concerned bunch of trauma providers with you. Um, how do you talk to them about that? And, and what do you do physically? Are you Sure. So, so one, I once I'd, I'd probably leave the family for a little bit to, with the chaplain, most likely, mm-hmm. to just kind of gather themselves and go back to the room. I tell the team what the plan is and ask them if anyone has any concerns. So, it's a team sport, right? We're the leader of the ship, but we are taking care of the whole team, and everyone should have some input. And then I tell them, this is. I think this is going to be the plan. We're going to do a palliative or terminal extubation. Um, I'll talk to the nurse and be very clear about that. We're going to pre-medicate, usually with at least an opioid and a benzo, if not an antipsychotic like Haldol as well, kind of depending if I think they need one, so that the team is aware of what's going to happen. And then I'd bring the family in and, you know, as a... as, as someone who's a survivor of multiple violent deaths myself, I do not, I am not trying to romanticize death. This is an awful situation. However, I always like to focus on what little can we do to make this situation right. better. This patient is going to die. He's young and he's going to die and it's tragic. But what can we do for the family to support them so that they can start their grieving process? So for me, I model with my own body what I think or hope or want to invite them to do, which is touching the patient, which is asking about the patient so that it can start hearing stories. And then the other thing I love to do is I always ask who's waiting for them on the other side, Mm -hmm. because I always say, let them leave with love and let them be met with love. And so we kind of talk about that. And I tell them, we're going to take this airway out and I am just going to make sure that he stays very comfortable. I think actually touching the patient is, is, is a huge thing. Um, especially in a setting like that where it's so clinical inside the trauma bay there's so much going on there's gonna be a lot of other people there 
bright lights, et cetera. You can sometimes set the stage in, in, in other rooms in the hospital, in the ICU, or even you know, other settings, and it's, it's very challenging in the trauma base. So physically touching that patient, I think, invites uh, shows the family they can touch too because they're going to be very scared as well. So I think that, that's huge. Uh, and then last, you, you mentioned too at one point uh, a moment of silence. Yeah. For the patient and, and for the team too, right? Yeah. So Jonathan Bartels, who's a friend of mine, he's a he was um, a trauma nurse and now works as a palliative care nurse at UVA. And he started this practice called The Pause, which is just 15 to 30 seconds of silence. And it's really meant to honor the patient and their family, to honor the work that the team did, and to just kind of bring closure to the relationship that we just established with this patient, whether it was for five minutes or 20 minutes or an hour, some, you know, we exchanged energy and we need, we all need some closure and then we have to move on and go save the next life because that's what we do. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for being here and I can't wait for the next episode on behind the knife uh, from your team and uh, on your podcast too. So thanks again. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. All right, now I'm joined by Dr. Bilal Joseph, a master of all things trauma and, and, and social media too. I love watching Dr. Joseph and all the, all the good stuff that's going on at the University of Arizona, where he is professor of surgery and trauma and vice chair of research. And uh, Dr. Joseph, you gave multiple talks. One was on geriatric trauma complications. Yes. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So let's start with the case. And then we'll jump into some uh, questions to highlight uh, some of the things you brought out in your talk. just want to say it's always an honor to be here with all of you and the amazing work that you do for all of us. So thank you. Always good to hear. So 67-year-old male. This, male, this person has COPD. They're not on home oxygen. Coronary artery disease on Plavix. And they fell in the bathroom. It was pretty unremarkable uh, mechanical fall. No loss of consciousness. And a complete trauma evaluation reveals multiple left-sided rib fractures a grade three splenic laceration without extravasation, and non-displaced fractures of the pubic rami. And the patient is admitted to the step-down unit for aggressive pulmonary therapy. So the first question I have for you is, is this patient geriatric, and is the definition still 65 years and older? Yeah. In the literature, there is no clear definition by age alone. I think what we're learning is age over time, age uh, affects your body. But to say a person starts aging when they're 65 is not a true statement. And people now are showing that even as young as 45, and a lot of the rib fracture studies show 45, you start seeing the complications. So we need to get away from age as just a chronological number Mm -hmm. and think of it as a physiological number and how you assess the body's physiology for the age. Right. So that brings in that word frail. Right. Right? So, So what is frailty how do you define it i mean it's the physiological age of the patient and it uh, it is not correlated i mean every study shows you it's not correlated to age i mean you can be old and frail or young and frail uh, or old and non-frail and i think frailty is your resilience it's your it's your it's your physio uh, it's your physiological response to aging and stressors over time right and that's and, what gets you to your And point. the data is clear, right, that, that it's frailty, not age, like you mentioned, that determines outcomes following trauma and, for that matter, like anything else, really, when they get them into the hospital, worse outcomes for more frail patients, right? Absolutely. I mean, I, I do, you know, I, 
aging has its impact over sure. time. You take an 80-year-old, that's an 80-year-old, no matter what you say. But there are healthy 80-year-olds, and then there are physiologically diminished 80-year-olds, for sure. lack of a better word. And so, the, But the, what frailty does is it objectifies it for you, so you're no longer doing the finger test. You know, finger up looks good, finger down. Look, the bedside eyeball doesn't work in this population. Right. So, so how do we tell if someone's frail? Yeah. And do we need to measure? Are, there, are we calculating this out? Are we In 2022, you absolutely should be measuring frailty on right. every patient over the age of 60. There's a lot of different frailty scores. Uh, we are now doing a multi-institutional trial on the trauma-specific frailty index, which we created back in 2013. We've been using it for seven years. There's six other institutions who have already implemented it. But whatever score you want, I'm not here to sell my score, but whatever sure. score you use, you need an objective way to measure because it's, we always focus on the frail. The last thing I'll say, there is pre-frail and non-frail. So the pre-frail is another category of patients who you could actually intervene to stop them from going over the edge after the stressor. The frail, sometimes it may be too late. Hmm. And, we'll, and one last thing I'll say that what we're learning now, even within the frail, there's levels of, like, there's like super frail and, mm-hmm. stri- you know, just frail. So what can trauma providers do to improve outcomes in frail patients? Yeah, I would tell you that we are no longer able to just rely. There's so much trauma volume that we have to own this. And the days of treating every single trauma activation or trauma patient the same are going to go away. Sure. American College of Surgeons is doing some things on the national level. We're creating, we just created a, the National Trauma Research Association Planning Committee just created the top 10 priorities in geriatric trauma research. We're trying to develop a, a geriatric research network. Put all that aside. What can you do at your local hospital? I think one is be informed. You know, when you have a high-level activation for a fall in a geriatric patient, it's not the same thing as a gunshot wound, high-level activation. So you got to start bringing other things in. One, calculating frailty, looking for delirium, mm-hmm. the things that surgeons don't like to do. But you have to start implementing geriatric best practices into your practice and treat them differently, whether it be mobility, poly, polypharmacy. I mean, there's uh, uh, multiple studies that showing that pathways that integrate geriatric principles of medicine into what we do sure. are different. Thinking that you can walk by a 65-year-old COPD patient who's got a grade 3 spleen and three rib fractures like you described and think that's like your 25 or 35-year-old, right. not the same. it's not the same. And then you put frailty. The other thing frailty does is it protects you because now that's a patient-level factor that the patient came in with like anything else. And we know that the outcomes in these patients, three, four, five times higher mortality, failure to rescue, uh, complications, discharge to rehab and all these things are going to be able to track and what about multidisciplinary care who's coming on board to help manage these frail uh, trauma patients we all know this can take a lot of time and a lot of effort i think there's three solutions to that one uh, there's only 12 like trauma surgeons there's only about 1200 geriatric uh, practitioners in the country Mm -hmm. so you could get a geriatrician if your institution has that and it doesn't have to be seven days a week 24 7 like we what we do is we scale them in and we created a protocol of when we consult them you know if you're frail and 60 right now that's what we're using and then we're going to look at the data I mean, we can't have every 65-year-old or 60-year-old right. be. The other thing is you can take your APP service or you can take your hospitalist team and then train them. And that's what we're doing now is we're establishing modules and protocols and teaching people geriatric trauma care. So even within that whole trauma sphere, you have special, semi-quasi, somewhat specialized groups who can. And some of the people have pushed it even further and have specific units where the nurses, the therapists are all trained for this. And I think this, this is going to be the future. And last, you mentioned uh, some stuff in the future. I think it's the AAST, right, that created the Geriatric Trauma Coalition. So uh, people are thinking about this. There is no trauma center in America that doesn't see 
geriatric trauma patients at least 30 to 40 percent of their volume. Yeah, no, we love to talk <laughs> see, about the, see, the, IV, got, the IVC injury the, and this and that, but in, and yet the matter is, that, is, is we are we're really and, taking care of these. And I will tell you, the future will be geriatric trauma activations. Um, when you get uh, verified by the American College of Surgeons, you are going to have to have geriatric-specific pathways and protocols. Sure. And I like to call it, you know, the the gold the gold activation, which is for the geriatric trauma. I mean, EROS, even forget trauma for even acute care surgery like EROS, mm-hmm. EROS protocols. Those will come into pathways where we're no longer thinking, but we're putting it into a pathway yeah. place. Pharmacists, dietitians, hospitalists. You have to do something. So more. as that all comes up, we'll know we'll know who to look to, and that'll <laughs> be uh, that'll be you, Doctor Joseph, for know. telling us telling us what we need to be worried about and how to take the best care of these patients. So I appreciate you being on. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.